With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Slow Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents... Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Previously on the Colonial Parkway Murders, Part 3. 30 years, and nothing but frustration for families of eight people who fell victim to an apparent serial killer along the Colonial Parkway. Keith's car was found, but the two have never been seen again. The body is never found. He's not going to come here. Somebody else most likely brought the car here. For the families of the people whose lives were lost some 30 years ago, the frustration is just as strong now as it was then. And tonight we are looking at missteps made during the opening stages of the investigation that may still be hindering things now. Rebecca Andowski and Kathleen Thomas, two haunting names never forgotten by people in Hampton Roads. They're the first two victims of the Colonial Parkway murders. Three days later, on Sunday evening, that car, a Honda Civic, was found off the Colonial Parkway. It had been rolled into these bushes, almost into the water. Rebecca Andowski and Kathleen Thomas, two haunting names never forgotten by people in Hampton Roads. They're the first two victims of the Colonial Parkway murders. Me and one of the other detectives found David about 50 feet down, I guess. Typically what the FBI will do is the investigative uh, agent will will text me and say, can you please call me? And I'll know they have some news. And we're talking a lot these days, and I'm thrilled about that. I won't ever stop. This is very important to me and to my family. Hello and welcome to the Colonial Parkway Murders, Part 4. I'm your host, Bill Huffman. And on this week's episode, I am joined by Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast, as well as Bill Thomas, the brother of victim Kathy Thomas. And on this week's show, we break down the case and where it stands today. We discuss some of the theories and some of the possible suspects that could have possibly been involved in the Colonial Parkway serial killings. So please join me this week as Bill, Nick, and I discuss the Colonial Parkway murders. The conversation that Nick and Bill and I had was very productive and it was one that did not have much of an intro so we're kind of just going to jump right into the conversation and enjoy i really wondered what your feelings now nick you're you're guesting right now so i guess i'm going to start with you what's your what's your you know last time we talked you said this case is obviously a one that interests you a lot what is it about the case that makes you so interested other than the fact that it's unsolved one, it's a, it's a very fascinating case, and it's one that you really have to sit and think about, and you can find yourself lost in thought for hours and days and weeks regarding this case. One big question is, are all four of these double homicides, are they in fact connected? And yeah. yeah. And actually, Bill Thomas and I, we spoke early last summer. And we probably spoke for three or four hours on the phone and with the intention of doing an interview that would be on 
my show, True Crime Garage, and we never aired the interview because so much of it became me saying things that were off the record and Bill saying things that were off the record. And at some point it got to the point where I didn't, I was a bit confused about what we could release and what we couldn't release, but what, (laughs) yeah. And so the, the conversation that we kept circling around and around and around about that took up the majority of our conversation was, are these attacks, are these murders in fact, 100% connected? And what I found very interesting by the end of that conversation is Bill Thomas and I seem to share a very similar opinion that it seems likely that they are. I wouldn't go 100% and say all four are in fact connected, but there are some connections there. Um, Several of these cases appear to be connected to me. And I believe Bill, that's, kind of where your feelings were, at least at that time. And I know this is a very fluid situation, even all these years later, this is something that you can change your opinion about. Um, But like FBI agents have pointed out to the Thomas family and to other families uh, of, of these victims, it would be very rare that you would have such similar circumstances of murdered, what we're going to call couples for a lack of a better word, uh, murdered couples uh, around the same area in such a short period of time. So I think for to kind of speed this up a little bit, rather than going round and round about on whether all of these are connected or not, I think we could, I think what we should try to do is talk about maybe possible suspects or persons of interest throughout the years, our thoughts on who the perpetrator or perpetrators may be, and just with the general respect and understanding that that none of us fully know if all four of these double homicides are in fact connected, but it seems that several in this series probably are. Is that do you feel that that's fair to say, Bill? I do. The one thing I'm not completely comfortable with is naming suspects by name. Um, And I don't know, you know, you guys have been doing this longer than I have. I don't, you know, I I think we we may be stepping into a questionable area about, you know, from a legality, from a legal perspective um, about, you know, name, you know, saying Joe Smith or Jane Doe is, you know, is a person of interest in the Colonial Parkway murders. It's funny, there are 150 persons of interest and I, I joke sometimes that I, it's somewhat ruefully, that I, I I feel like I know most of them by name. But one thing I'm not terribly comfortable with is, is you know, outing somebody as a potential suspect in the Colonial Parkway murders. I don't know how you guys feel about that. I think that's fair and I think that's part of the reason why we didn't air the interview that you and I did. Bill, because we we did name names on that phone conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's one hundred percent fair because the, the people that we were would be naming here would essentially be quote unquote our suspects, not necessarily law enforcement being upfront and public about person A, B, or C being a real suspect in in their minds. So, right. Um, yeah, my my biggest, you know, obviously, I think you know. You, in the first episode, we obviously discussed, you know, the overkill with your sister and and the second case with, um, you know, D- 
David and uh and so like I'm what I'm confused not confused I guess my big question lies with the third case the third couple where they never found the bodies right and Keith not finding the bodies you know how much of a like how much how much do you think that that actually played into the connection between all these other cases. Well, in the Keith call Cassandra Haley example, the third case, that's the couple that disappeared and Keith's car is found along the colonial parkway, you know, a mile or two away from where my sister Kathy and Rebecca Dowski's car was found. It presents a real challenge because unlike the other double homicides in the colonial parkway murders, there's no bodies. And the call family in particular felt very strongly that Keith's Toyota Celica didn't belong there. And so it, it it's, and interestingly, it's not on the way home from the party they attended at Christopher, Christopher Newport university. So it, it, from a forensic perspective, the law enforcement investigators tell me it presents a massive challenge because you don't have bodies. You don't even know how they, how they died in the beginning. They didn't even know if they died. We're assuming here it is 30 something years later that, that they're dead, but we still don't know um, if, you know, they were killed with a hundred percent assuredness. And we certainly don't know how they were killed. Now, do you know if there was any physical evidence found at the scene of their scene that was able, they were able to like connect with the previous two victims or previous well, two. The, well, when we met with the FBI face to face in 2010, after they lost control of the crime scene photos, they met with the, the four FBI families. Remember four families are connected to the case and their cases are handled by the FBI. And then the other four families and we're all in touch those four, the two double homicides on that side of the case are handled by the Virginia State Police. <clears throat> we asked them in 2010, are the cases linked? And they said definitively um, that there is nothing in the forensics that links the four cases in the Colonial Parkway murders. Now, that answer may have changed and they might not have shared that with the family. So that's entirely possible, but that's the answer that we have and they've never modified it. Nick, did you ever have any questions about that case or that particular incident? Well, I think going off of what Bill just said regarding the FBI statement to the families, the, uh, with the third case, 100% that crime scene, we're going to call that vehicle a crime scene, regardless of how it got there. That crime scene is 100% compromised. That That is without question. And that that in itself throws a whole nother wrench into the whole situation. I really, when I look at this case, and it's unfortunate that you have two different investigating agencies in four cases that could be all connected and very likely they share different thoughts and opinions if they even shared opinions or thoughts at all with one another. Um, but from what I see immediately that jumps off the page to me and in all four of these cases is look, 
the way that you solve crimes, the way that you solve murders, there are mistakes that are made. There are missteps made by the perpetrator. There's evidence left behind. There's ways that they slip up. That's how they catch these individuals. The problems in all four of these cases is, you know, on our show, we talked so much recently about offenders getting lucky, murderers getting lucky. What, what breaks did they catch along the way? And the big break that I see repeated four times over in this case is that because most of the victims were younger people, I think that there were assumptions made about these individuals being the victims by law enforcement at the time that were not true. They just weren't true. You know, there are things like, oh, they probably went skinny dipping in the middle of a very cold night. No, they didn't. Um, they these people were probably out there looking for drugs. Maybe they weren't. Um, You know, I think there were assumptions made by law enforcement on a very local level immediately within the first 48 hours, within the first 72 hours, where I think there was some things lost along the way because of assumptions made. I really truly believe had the victims been 30 40, 45, 50 years old in in these cases, that those assumptions would not have been made. And that immediately these cases would have been handled very differently. And I think that was a big misstep and and probably a misunderstanding, um, be it innocent or not, on law enforcement's level from the get-go in in this whole thing. And, And it's unfortunate because I think if we are in fact talking about one perpetrator or a team of perpetrators, um, I think we're probably talking about fairly, fairly intelligent individuals and, but they're not perfect, right? Okay. There, there are prisons full in this country of people that set out to do the perfect crime and thought that they committed the perfect crime. They didn't. That's how they got caught. And this individual or this team of individuals could have been, could have been apprehended. Uh, and, and again, I think there were, there were missteps made, especially in this third case with the compromised vehicle. Um, that was kind of handled by some, from my understanding, some, some guys with badges that were probably lesser than an Eagle Scout. Uh, and and, and it, had it been handled differently, we probably have some, some better information, some better evidence there was something left in that vehicle that just it's lost to us. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And as a, as an Eagle scout, I, I, I'll chime in and, and, and agree with you on that. I was laughing when you were quietly, when you were <laughs> referencing Eagle scouts, no, they, you, you raise a number of important issues. The other thing I think it's important to remember is the, the killer or killers have the advantage of time now because, you know, I think your listeners have to remember that this was 30 now 30 to 33 years ago crime scenes were handled in a very different way now of course you know you see um a, a, a crime scene a, a potential murder scene sealed off before uh, forensics experts can get in and take samples and that stuff didn't happen back then the you know as, as I, i've mentioned i think probably to both of you you know, I've talked to the first responders who were there the day that uh, Kathy and Becky were found in my sister's Honda. They literally climbed in the car uh, to determine if if Kathy and Becky were dead. I'm not blaming anybody. That was what you did in 1986. 
And a year and a half later, when when Keith calls Toyota is found on the Colonial Parkway, they, uh, you know, it appears that National Park Service Rangers removed articles of clothing from the car in an effort to determine um, who had abandoned this car on the Colonial Parkway. And then after hearing that this might actually be a crime scene and not just a case of somebody leaving a car at this pull off on the parkway, went back apparently, and placed the articles of clothing back inside the car. And then later, um, a dog team was permitted to, I'm actually told, to climb inside the car, the Toyota, and then go out and scent. And I understand that the dogs were doing their job and the handlers were doing their job. But in 2019, you would never let um, I'm picturing a German Shepherd or a Bloodhound, physically climb inside a car from a missing couple in order to pick up the scent. There has to be a way to do that. And I'm sure they would do that now in a different way. So the the killer or killers do have some advantages, which is, you know, these compromised crime scenes and the way things were handled. And in a you know, I've been critical in some examples of how uh, this investigation was was handled, but I also try to look back with a 1986 to 1989 perspective on on what was then the very limited science of forensics and how crime scenes were handled. Yeah, I mean, anytime you have a dog climbing through a crime scene I, I just think that that instantly loses a little bit of credibility as far as what the crime scene can hold and what it can you know let the investigators actually know i just find it so shocking that now th- i'm just to verify this is the case where they said they went skinny dipping right this is Correct. And and let's let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, it's it's April water temperatures in the York River, which is very wide and very deep and very cold. Water temperatures were in the 40s. They were the the couple, uh, Keith Call and Cassandra Haley, are on a first date. Um, He is known not to particularly like the Colonial Parkway, which is pitch black out there. There's no lights as you guys know, and I've been out there at midnight, it is dark. And it's the parkway is 20 minutes out of their way from uh, the college party where they are uh, in Newport News to her parents' home in Grafton, Virginia. It's 20 minutes in the wrong direction. She's considered, she's a beautiful young woman, but Sandy was considered by her sisters who were very close to her as very modest. And they said, there's no way she, you know, even with this cute guy from her class, there's no way that she's getting naked and going skinny dipping with this guy on a first date. And then to just further add to it, the car is found at this uh, little half moon pull off off the Colonial Parkway. Not a lot of privacy. Uh, It's no more than if it's 30 feet from the road, I've I've paced it. It, it. It's. I'd be surprised. And it's kind of on a little bit of a cliff overlooking the river. There are places within a couple of hundred yards that are grassy that have like a three or four foot drop down to a sandy beach. So 
as I've said before, even if you were drunk off your butt and decided you were going to go skinny dipping on a first date in April with a with a guy you didn't know very well, there there are places and Keith knew the parkway that they could have actually accessed the water or let's just say they were going to go stick their feet in the water or whatever. You, I don't think you would do it at the place where you're 25 or 30 feet down a steep, rocky path on what is essentially a bluff overlooking the river versus uh, a place two, 200 yards away where you could have just hopped down onto the beach. The skinny dipping premise to Nick's point about assumptions made by investigators, probably because all of the victims in the Colonial Parkway case are all young you know, high school, college, Kathy Thomas is the oldest at age 27. um, And Robin Edwards is the youngest at age 14. But actually, if you put Kathy aside, everybody's in the 14 to 21 year old range. And I do think assumptions were made about what these kids were up to. Now, Nick, I remember on your episode when you did the Colonial Parkway case, you had said something about the body, you know, the any the interaction between the the two of the third couple, you know, at the party before they left. Was that also something that was, you know, kind of a red flag where um, they may not have had the best first date? Nick? Well, I think it's a huge red flag in the sense that they their vehicle should never be where it was found. That's the big red flag. Every indication we have is that they, the intentions were to drive the date home, whether it was going well or not. And like Bill said, way this vehicle is found way out of the way, way off the route that would have been driven to get the, the date home by curfew. It, it appears that all intentions were to get her home by curfew. Parking somewhere and going skinny dipping in ice cold water it should be the furthest thing from anybody's thoughts or intentions at the time. So the red flag that that points out to me, and this is why I keep referencing that we might be dealing with a team here, a two man team is I truly feel like that vehicle was placed there that it that, that, you know, we got bloodhounds or German shepherds crawling around inside the vehicle. I would be shocked if they found any trace, any scent to follow from that vehicle at all. And if they did, I would question what that scent was. Was was it picked up because there was a perpetrator that that drove that vehicle and moved it, and then the dog picked up on the perpetrator's scent instead? Uh, Unfortunately, dogs can't speak yet. One day we will teach them, and they will be able to tell us whose scent they are following. But for what we have now, I feel like that's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy, yeah, anybody can drive a vehicle and get out and walk away. The problem is, where where was this couple picked up? I believe that they were picked up in some form or fashion on their route for to drive her home. And that's scary for a couple of different reasons. One, if, if you're moving a vehicle from wherever you pick these people up or from wherever you intercept them, then getting that vehicle to where it is eventually left. And then now you have a situation where the easiest thing would be to, to follow the car there and pick up your team member uh, involved in this. And, and I feel like we're, we're seeing a situation with a couple of these cases that it appears that a vehicle has been moved 
and then staged. And we're also seeing a couple situations where it appears that they're that the victims are under the impression that the, that they're being pulled over or that they're they've been come upon by law enforcement or some authority figure. We see, you know, windows partially rolled down or all the way rolled down, glove boxes open. Uh, it appears that they might even be attempting to show identification or vehicle registration. Um, and I think that that is all part of this whole, this, that's, that's the, your angle here for, for the, the killer or the killers. I think that it's very likely that we're talking about somebody that was posing as an authority figure, was an authority figure, or was training to be an authority figure and using that to their advantage. The Hillside Strangler case would have been well known. They, those two individuals were using that same method for pulling people over and, and abducting them. And it would have been, it would have been something easy to imitate I think that Kathy Thomas's case is is interesting and and kind of a standalone to me in the sense that when I look at the when I look at the victims here um and specifically Kathy everything that I've learned about her uh through Bill and through research on my own regarding her case we are talking about an ex- an extremely intelligent woman. All right, twenty seven years old, extremely intelligent. She, you know, trained at the Navy, uh, schooled at the Navy. What I believe here, especially in her case, and in her case is one of the ones where I feel like I feel like her case is the one where they were most likely to be parked on the parkway out of all four of these cases. And therefore, that makes it a little different. But what I want to point out here is the reason why I say that it was maybe not just someone posing as an authority figure, but somebody that was that was an authority figure or was training to do so. I say that because Kathy was so intelligent that there would have she would have been tipped off very quickly if this guy was a total fake and fraud. And I think that there was there was enough props. There was enough. Uh, stuff going on that in a short period of time she believed it and that would not have been easy to do well and I'll, I'll throw into the mix Nick I think all your observations are spot on um, the, the one uh, caveat I think I would throw into the mix is let's say someone approaches these couples while they're parked and you're absolutely right. Kathy and Becky were the only serious couple, the lesbian couple, the only serious couple in the entire uh, crew. As a matter of fact, some of these people don't even really know each other particularly well and are maybe one step away from traveling companions. But um, uh, the use, for example, of a gun as a, as a method of establishing control fairly early on in an interaction. And, you know, I've had a gun pulled on me uh, in a, in a robbery in a retail store that I worked in years ago. And, you know, boy, when that, con- that gun comes out, you do whatever the heck that person is telling you to do, because you're thinking, I, I want to get out of this thing alive. And so I think it's quite possible that the, the couples are stopped or, pu- or pulled over 
and someone approaches the vehicle in a way where at least initially they don't feel threatened. And then mm-hmm. it, it obviously it's going to transition over to murder, but there are a lot of steps between, uh-oh, the cops or someone with a blue light or whatever they use in particular in your particular town uh, is pulling us over. There's a, there's a, a number of steps between there and a, and a situation that degenerates to a place where murders are starting to take place. And you can bridge that gap of authority um, to, with, with, by sticking a gun in someone's face. With control. Yeah, exactly. And, the, you know, a gun is only used in one of the Colonial Parkway uh, murders. Uh, case number two, uh, Edward Snobling at the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge. But it's entirely possible that a gun would have been used to control the couples and then a- allowed you know, other terrible things to move forward. In the fourth case, it's suspected that a knife was used for the killings. Correct. With Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer, they're the couple that were found on I-60, off I-64, six weeks after they went missing. It was very difficult to determine cause of death, but when they sent the bones to the Smithsonian, uh, they did uh, additional analysis and they found what they believed were nick marks on the hand bones, um, which indicated defensive wounds. In other words, you know, you put your hands up to try to fend someone off. Um, Because the bodies were in such bad shape, they weren't able to determine cause of death. But if that's the case, um, that means a knife would have been used in case number one, Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski, where their throats were slit. And then in case number four, uh, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer, where it appears they tried to use their hands to defend themselves against someone wielding a knife. You know, you mentioned something, Bill, in uh, when you were talking about how dark it gets in the parkway. And do you think that would lead to the more of the idea that it is an authority figure, knowing that it's a, like the perfect spot to basically have the time to commit a crime like this? Yeah, probably, you know, keeping in mind that only two of the four cases actually directly happened on the Colonial Parkway, despite the name. But having been out there literally at midnight within the last couple of years, um, you know, fortunately, with a few other people, one or two of them, one or two of them was probably armed, um, which made us feel a little bit better. (laughs) Uh, it, It is pitch black out there there is not a single light and so when the when the lights go out it is just it's beautiful but it is completely dark and isolated and that's if there's another common thread you know nick was mentioning some of these common threads that's one of them these are all places where couples would go to be alone but they're extremely isolated very dark and if you, one of the investigators talked to me a few years ago about when a vehicle pulled up, let's just say, um, behind these uh, stopped couples, and, and they've got a light on the dashboard or up under the grill, and they've got their brights on. They, this investigator talked to me about a wall of light. And in other words, you're parked and you maybe have the radio on and, you know, you're being romantic or whatever, or just shooting the breeze. 
this vehicle comes up behind you and stops, you'd have no idea who's on the other side of that wall of light. And and they that person, and if they're trained or they know what they're doing, can do things like separate the couples. For example, let's say they present it as law enforcement and they come up, you know, and do the license and registration thing, which we've all um well, I don't know about you guys, but it certainly happened to me a few times. <laughs> I should oh, be yeah. careful. Uh, and, and look, uh, you know, I, I I picture myself as a younger man parking with a girlfriend. And, you know, guy comes up, raps on the window. Maybe you were a little busier than you should have been and not paying a lot of attention to your surroundings. Um, I see Bill smiling on the screen there. Um, it, it happens. You know, you're with someone and you're not paying attention to your surroundings, maybe to your detriment. But then someone comes up and raps on the window and they present as law enforcement. And, you know, they kind of stand slightly out of your eye line. They do that for their own safety. But someone comes up and, you know, delivers a license and registration demand with some degree of authority. And at this point, you believe this is a legitimate law enforcement officer. You're, You're going to comply. And, you know, to Nick's point from a minute ago, Kathy Thomas with Naval Academy training and five years in the Navy, she had just left the Navy before um, her unfortunate demise, Kathy's going to respect an authority figure in that way. And so at that point, you're you're kind of just following orders and hoping you're not going to get, you know, written up or a traffic ticket or whatever. And... Remember that that perpetrator, let's say it's a single perpetrator, if they insist that the driver, let's just say, get out of the car, you're probably going to do it. I remember one of the investigators saying to me, white middle class people like these eight victims will comply when ordered to do something by a law enforcement officer. And remember, this is 30 years ago. It's Virginia. It's a fairly conservative area. I would say that further indicates that people would just do what they were told. So it's even possible to separate the two victims by saying, I'd like you to step back here to the car with me, and then back to that wall of light thing. Once that individual, let's say the driver, is ordered to step back to the quote-unquote police car, the other person in the car who's sitting there kind of thinking, oh, geez, oh, geez, oh, geez, what did we do? Or perhaps you know, doing a little buttoning and straightening, if you know what I mean. Um, they have no idea what's happening on the other side of that wall of light. And terrible things could be happening. Or at minimum, they may be transitioning to restraining that uh, victim. And then they come back for the person in the passenger seat. I'm just laying out a scenario here. I'm not saying this is what happened. But it's possible for someone who's not really law enforcement, but presents as such, they've got the advantage. And if you, you know, I've read a little bit recently about blitz attacks too, where someone comes up on you very suddenly and you, you know, you're not, you're not in a defensive place. You're in a, probably a romantic place or whatever, um, a relaxed, uh, situation. And then suddenly there's someone who's at your, at your window or pulling on your door and, so there are a number of different scenarios where you can see that this uh, the person who's striking out at you has significant advantages. 
Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of cases where you kind of these cases remain unsolved, I think the authority taking the authority route and being an authority impersonator, I think it really does give you an advantage if you're going to be looking to do a blitz attack or, like you said, using the wall of light. I mean, one, it puts that individual in a completely, I mean, they drop their guard. I mean, because they're now left to, you know, they're not the authority anymore. They're not the one calling the shots. And if they're in a situation where an authority figure, an officer or whomever pulls you over, well, you're out of the, you're out of their, you're under their control now. And I just, I think that fits this scenario so well, especially with the way that these individuals and like Nick had said, the fact that the car ended up where it did is telling and is the red flag of, you know, it's just such an easy spot to get rid of what you're looking for. And you're going to see car lights coming. Like I've discussed and we've discussed in the Mahalovic case where those bodies and all, you know, all those crimes were committed. You're going to see car lights from a good significant distance and give you enough time to either, I don't know, scatter or just make it not appear like you're doing anything on the, you know, shady side. Let me respond to that though, for a second, a couple of years ago on the 30th anniversary of uh, Kathy and Becky's murder, I did a whole series of interviews out on the Colonial Parkway where Kathy's car was found. And so I met with all of the television and radio and, and, um, uh, and television news crews in, in the area, one after another. So I was there for, I think, two days, and I did interview after interview. So I had downtime in between those interviews. So obviously I walked around and I thought about the case and so on. But one of the things I noticed was I made a point of timing how long it took for me to hear a car coming, which I could hear them before that I could see them. And the, in the Colonial Parkway example, the road surface is rough. It's designed to feel like an old-fashioned highway. It was built by the National Park Service in, in, to connect these historical sites, Jamestown, Yorktown, uh, Colonial Williamsburg. So I had time, and I timed the, those cars coming. And it was uh, between 10 and 15 seconds from the time I heard the car to the time the car kind of crossed my field of vision. So it's not that long, surprisingly. Now, I, I agreed on the light thing, but even at night, and we were out there, I won't indicate what we were doing, uh, but we were investigating the Colonial Parkway murder, shall we say, um, even at night, um, it, you'd probably know more than 15 seconds between the time you heard and saw the car coming and the car arrived into your kind of narrow field of view. Remember, there's a lot of trees there. So you got about 15 seconds by my calculation. Um, that's not a lot of time. And so, for example, if you're sitting out there with some, with your traveling companion, you're, you know, and you're getting romantic, or let's say you're, let's be, Frank here, sitting there listening to music, maybe smoking a joint or drinking a beer, which kids do, I hear, um, <laughs> said the father of a 21-year-old, <laughs> um, uh, who's now legal. Uh, but, you know, you've got 15 seconds. 
And then whoever is going to appear on your screen, if you know what I mean, is there. Uh, so, you know, you don't necessarily have time to get it together to button things up, fire up the car. I mean, uh, believe me, I've tried. Um, I- I've gotten away once or twice, but not every single time. And if you felt non-threatened or even somebody, I mean, think about how terrifying this would be. If you're in that situation and someone rolls up on you and then they turn on their lights, um, you know, so out of the pitch blackness, all of a sudden, boom, there's a car behind you and there's a guy at the window. Uh, this is a terrifying scenario. And uh, to to your point, Bill, and, and to Nick's, I think that authority figure approach could be a through line as well as the moving of the cars post-mortem and the staging, apparent staging of those cars to create certain impressions amongst law enforcement personnel who were then looking into abandoned cars or, um, or bodies found therein. Nick, what's your thought about the cars being moved? Well, as I said earlier, it would be easier with two individuals to to move these vehicles. I feel like uh, in in Kathy and Becky's case, that's the only case out of the four that I see that, that anybody would have any reason to actually be parked off of the Colonial Parkway if, in fact, that they were parked and not pulled over. Uh, we don't know that for certain. Uh, I, I see in the second case where... Um, we have a situation where it appears to me that those victims more likely were pulled over. And um, in the third, I'm sorry, sorry, the third case, the victims appear to me to be more likely to have been pulled over because we know the intentions or or believed intentions of, of the victims that evening. And I think that vehicle was probably moved. And I think we have a situation where, What's weird about the third one to me is is because we think the victims very likely could have been traveling a decent distance away from the parkway. It, you wonder why the, the if it was moved, if the vehicle was moved, why they chose where they placed it. Then it just then it just happen upon a, a, a spot and go, oh, let's go here, you know, and and. You you wonder why that they chose that is is that is it because we want a situation where we want the public who doesn't seem to understand at the time that these murders are connected are we trying to make that kind of statement are we trying to make it easy for public to uh, to see that there is a connection here that giving the the killer or killers some type of credit um, that they may feel is due. Uh, the other thing too is it was the vehicle moved to that that location because we know the car was compromised. We know the crime scene was compromised. We we have a, a belief that look, it was compromised three times over. But the first people to compromise that that crime scene are in fact the the park rangers. Is it placed there to give that ability to do that? I don't know. The problem I have is regardless of when they find the vehicle, why remove anything from the vehicle? That I don't understand the what the purpose of that is. I've never gotten a great explanation, but I've talked to people that were there at the beginning, and 
we're told that uh, they removed articles of clothing and personal items. I know that that um, uh, Keith's glasses were in the car. Sandy's checkbook uh, w- was was there. So that I think that indicates that her purse was there because that's actually how they got a hold of of the uh, the Haley family was by you know, looking at her address, um, on, on her checks. Um, so I, you know, it, it seems odd to me and it, it's always, uh, trouble the, the call and Haley families, but it appears that, um, you know, they, they, it probably took Keith's wallet, which if memory serves had $12 in it. And, um, uh, it, it, you know, they, they seem to have taken these personal effects away in an effort to find out what the story was with this abandoned car. You know, Keith and Cassandra aren't there. Um, and, you know, the car is found. And as I've talked about with Bill, the you know, we have this troubling scenario where Mr. Call, uh, Richard Call, uh, Keith's dad, actually passed by the uh, Toyota Celica on his way to work at the Bush Brewery where he was a foreman that morning and stopped briefly. And he says he's now passed away, but he said uh, repeatedly uh, and even under hypnosis, trying to remember as many details as possible that he found nothing out of the ordinary in the vehicle. And he swears up and down that there was, uh, you know, he didn't see any articles of clothing in the back seat, and you know that sort of thing. And yet, when investigators are reviewing the crime scene later, there are articles of clothing. Now, as I've said, it's possible Mr. Call didn't take quite as thorough a look at the car as he thought he had, but he swore that he, you know, got out of the car and called out to Keith, and um, you know, this was a reg- his regular route route to work. And it was obviously very unusual to see Keith's very distinctive car sitting there, you know, 25 feet from the Colonial Parkway. And so, you know, it's, it's very odd. My understanding is there was a significant amount of friction right from day one between National Park Service rangers who were accused of moving items from the car and then returning to replace those items back inside the car. Um, and then when the FBI got involved, and this is a shared jurisdiction situation, but obviously murder investigations are not handled by National Park Service investigative rangers. They're handled by um, FBI agents. And if you're unfortunate enough to be killed on federal property. So there's this very strange uh, inconsistency between the articles of clothing, which Mr. Call says were not there and were later found. and our understanding is that they were removed by rangers and then replaced by those same rangers once they realized they weren't just dealing with uh, an abandoned car along the Colonial Parkway. So their general answer is we removed articles to try to identify the driver so we could notify the owner of the vehicle. Possible that that might be their the motive for that. Again, seems strange. It's it's like, couldn't you find Keith's wallet and and call it into the dispatch and say, can you can you phone <laughs> this address while I stand here with this vehicle? It 
It seems very bizarre. And look, it's either just a dumb move that happened or it, is, it, is it something more nefarious? Is it something where the, there's, there's some, some angle there? I don't know. It makes it very difficult that the, the, the bodies weren't found in that situation. Um, again, it, I, I see what, what I, you know, certainly not a, a profiler though. I try to play one on the, on the radio, but um, what you see here is, is an, is just so much control, you know, from the, from the start of approaching the victims with the possible uh, ruse of being a police officer or authority figure to Look, if if this individual just wanted to, and, and Bill, I apologize to you being a family member, of, you know, being victim yourself for for some of the words that I'm about to use. But um, if somebody just wanted to thrill kill, you know, son of Sam Zodiac, they just approached the side of the vehicle and started firing away. We don't have that in in any of these situations. We have a situation where whomever did this wanted to um, insert control, their authority and control into a situation from the get go and maintain that for a certain amount of time um, until even after death in a lot of these cases where they're still manipulating the vehicles and manipulating crime scenes and moving things around. And that's to me where the the bizarreness is of of this whole thing. And um, yeah, and unfortunately, they, unfortunately, too, you, you almost see if in fact all four of these are connected or three out of the four are connected, whatever. You see a situation where the individual or the the, the killers are learning. Unfortunately, along the way, there was a lot in the first case where it seems like there were things that were not going well for going, you know, there were things that weren't working as efficiently, I guess uh, I would say in the first one to where then in the second case, you see, well, we know a gun is involved in the second one because we know the victims were shot. However, guns are very loud. And then we see a situation in the fourth where, uh, where there probably was a knife used, which, which it's, it's almost like a trial and error thing for, for what's going on here. Or, uh, no, I think you're touching on a lot of really important things. Um, if, just to quickly review, in Kathy and Becky's case, Kathy and Becky are strangled with rope and then... There, there's been a piece of rope found under Kathy's long red hair uh, by the investigators that were, was cut at both ends. So we know rope was used. And then, then their throats are cut from beyond ear to ear. Kathy's essentially decapitated, but their hearts are still beating based on the uh, uh, blood loss and so on. This is what the investigators tell me. Um, and then the bodies are loaded in the car. And then there's this clumsy, my word, attempt to set the car on fire with diesel fuel. So you've got rope, knives, and at least potentially fire. And then after that, he, he or they push the Honda over the, the little embankment and down the river, uh, down towards the surface of the York River, and it gets caught in underbrush, fortunately. So there's, you're right, there's all of these uh, techniques used uh, some successfully, some not successfully. In the second example, 
if we go with the premise just for a second that um, a gun is used to establish control, you could make the case that um, in the Edwards Knobling case at Ragged Island, case number two, where they're shot, that perhaps David made a break for it and he's shot in the shoulder and then finished off with a kill shot to the head. Robin Edwards then sadly, and again, the sequence could be opposite, but she's shot in the head. Um, in case number three, um, we have a situation where Keith Collin and Cassandra Haley disappear. So we don't know how they died. And then in case number four, up on I-64, Anna Maria Phelps and Dan and Daniel Lauer, um, it appears that a knife was used. So we start and end with a knife, but in case number two, a gun is used, perhaps because the situation went south. And Nick used the expression learning, and we've read about this. We know that killers will modify techniques and learn and 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 change things up. And they react to situations um, kind of, you know, as they unfold. Um, the, I'd like to steer back to something you said. One of the things about the Colonial Parkway murders that's always struck me is they seem very intimate to me. In other words, it isn't like Son of Sam and some of these other thrill killings where uh, a perpetrator walks up to a car while a couple is engaged in in uh, romance or whatever, and 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 shoots them. And, and think about it: there, you can shoot somebody from you know anywhere from a few feet to you know hundreds of yards away. But there's in the Colonial Parkway murders. To me, it feels much more intimate. They they want to get close to these people, and uh, unfortunately, end their lives. And the you know the knife may be more of a through line than we realize. We're terribly handicapped because we never found the bodies in the Keith Call, Cassandra Haley uh, crime scene. But it, it feels like they want to get close for some reason. This feels intimate and personal. It's obviously highly brutal, but they aren't just walking up to a car and plugging away uh, at the car or the victims with a handgun. And that's kind of what right. makes me think it's like more like Nick's theory and that it may be more more like a team effort because of so many different things you have to control in the situation. And I understand that gun can control a lot of those. But when you're moving vehicles, you're you do have to worry about. I mean, the more that you think about it, I could see two people like the Hillside Stranglers functioning in the in that same sort of you know way i mean I, I just don't see how that couldn't be a possibility especially with all the signs that it's an authority figure and the fact that i mean the, again with your sister's case i mean the car was pushed off yes somebody could do that individually but it's it still i mean it would be easier to do it with two people now, is it harder to keep a conspiracy quiet? Yes. But, I mean, how do you feel about that, Bill? I mean, do you, do you feel like that, it, that it's a possibility that there's more than one uh, perpetrator? Or do you think this is actually, you know, one guy that is, you know, committing these acts? 
Well, in 1990, there was a task force. They did, there was some level of cooperation between the FBI and the Virginia State Police and local and county law enforcement. In 1990 or so, they did float a theory publicly at a press conference that there was a leader and a follower, that there were two people, men, involved in this case, and that I don't know why they choose to go down this road, but they, in 1990 or so, they put out um, statements to the follower indicating that they thought that he might be in danger and that he, they, and, and again, I, you know, they, they do, law enforcement does what they, they do. And Larry McCann, who's a longtime uh, FBI trained profiler who worked for the Virginia State Police, Larry McCann, I remember, led this press conference where they were putting out a message that to the follower that they thought that he might be in danger as a result of, um, you know, uh, th threats to his life or whatever from the leader. And, you know, as Nick said, it is a lot easier to move vehicles around with two people than one, although Law enforcement experts have walked me through scenarios. They've actually taken me to the crime scenes and walked me through what they think happened at some of the crime scenes. And I've spent hours meeting with, and I'll be frank, sometimes arguing with, uh, particularly the FBI because they're the lead agency in my sister's case. But we've talked about all four crime scenes. I've been to all of the crime scenes, obviously, and sometimes with investigators. And we're about to have the case reprofiled by Jim Clemente, who's a legendary FBI profiler, now retired. Um, he's still a young man who laugh when he hears this, but he, he you know, just because you're retired from law enforcement doesn't mean you're, um, you know, using a walker or anything. Um, but Jim Clemente is going to reprofile the case. It'll be fascinating to see what Jim comes up with, and he'll be reporting this on a television series we're going to do for the Oxygen Network next year uh, in spring 2020. Uh, Jim's going to lead a team of people who are going to re-examine the Colonial Parkway murders. It'll be Stay fascinating to see what for part a set of fresh eyes, of the Colonial Parkway uh, murders, all with FBI a special trained guest, investigators. Nick from the um, True Crime up, Garage podcast um, and Bill Thomas, where we discuss and take a deep but dive it, it into is, some of the suspects um, and some of the theories I behind personally, the case my personal and where the case swung currently back and stands. Forth based on whatever so thank the you again for listening. Was. And everybody, uh, between, please Yes, these four double homicides safe. are related to No, They're Not. And I, I'm now somewhere in the middle on that pendulum swing. Uh, I think it's possible that some of these cases are, are related. I think it's quite possible that one or more of these double homicides might fall off the table, if you know what I mean, and not end up being directly related to the other Colonial Parkway murders. Now, Nick, do you think that they're all, you know, connected as far as... And have you talked to Bill about the other case that occurred about 150 miles away in... Uh, what was the, was it in Shenandoah? Where was the, the national park that the other killing? In, in 1996, another lesbian couple, Julie Williams and Lolly Winans, were murdered over um, Memorial Day 1996. So you're talking about 10 years 
later after Kathy and Becky's murder uh, and about 180 miles away, still within the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, in a national park on a three-day federal holiday weekend um, in a in a murder that the FBI said publicly was substantially similar to particularly to Kathy and Becky's murder with a, a lesbian couple, national park, three-day federal weekend, uh, outdoorsy, athletic, uh, uh, two-woman couple with their with binding and their throats slashed. Um, it, 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 it could be possible that the, the Julie Williams, Lolly Winans murder in 96 might tie back into Kathy and Becky's murder in 1986. No, the, I mean, that's the other thing that's difficult with, with this, with the Colonial Parkway murders case is when you're looking at this and you're trying to figure out what you can deduce from any one of these crime scenes and from any one of these crimes, and then you have the layers of the other crimes and what is connected and what is not connected. There are many reasons to believe that the Shenandoah case is connected. There are many reasons to believe that it is not. Um, it, it certainly has circumstantial, you know, there are certain substances about that case that, that mirror the first uh, case of, of Becky and Kathy in the, in the Colonial Parkway murders. And, 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 and a lot of that is based off of victimology, really and truly. And then that, if, if that's the connection, then, then essentially the Shenandoah case has no connection to the other three Colonial Parkway murders, I, with, with the exception of the, the thought being that the, the killer likely assumed that they were couples that, that he was approaching. Um, it, it's... It's really, this is one of those cases that is, is so much more frustrating than fascinating to me and, and in heartbreaking. I mean, it's frustration because there are reasons to believe in, and things that you can, uh, that took place in that Shenandoah case that you, you sit here and you go, I I feel like that one should have been solved. I feel like the the justice should have really been served in that case. And there were, there were some, just some weird stuff that happened that, that didn't lead to what I thought could have been a, a very likely conviction in that case. And, and then you start to wonder if, if you had a conviction in that case, does that, does that help you? get to your answers in these four cases or do you go or then do you absolutely eliminate it as a possibility of any relation at all? Yeah. And just to, you know, further add to the head scratching, the, there are four national park service rangers who were working uh, in the colonial national park in 1986 who were then working up at the Shenandoah National Park in 1996. And at least one of them was a person of interest and was given a lie detector test in Kathy and Becky's murder. And then no one's ever been able to give me a a good answer to this question. How in the world did that guy end up being permitted to be one of the lead investigators in the Julie Williams, Lolly Winans murder 10 years later, which I'm not saying it's related, but Let's just say the FBI had said publicly, which they did, 
that this case was substantially similar to the murder of Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski. How was it that a guy who was a person of interest in the 1986 murder was permitted to be one of the lead investigators in the 1996 murder, 10 years later, of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans? These are the kind of things that completely baffle and frustrate me, and I've still never gotten a great answer. Now, it's funny. I'm working on a book on the Colonial Parkway murders, and then Earlier this year, a wonderful writer named Kate Miles, who's written a number of books, approached me. She's working on a book on the Julie Williams Lolly Winans murder herself. And so she reached out to me. We compared notes. We, we, we met face to face, which is obviously my preference. Um, last winter, um, up here in Connecticut, uh, she drove all the way down here from Maine to meet with me. And we've had numerous great conversations since. We're exploring more of the idea of could the murder of Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski and Julie Williams and Lolly Winans be connected. But to Nick's point, that might mean that the rest of the Colonial Parkway murders might not be related um, to Kathy and Becky's murder. I still think there's a connection between some or all of the Colonial Parkway murders but I, there are days when I think to myself, you know, exactly what's going on here. I think there are patterns, but they have not made themselves completely clear. Yeah, I, I just think the coincidences between having some rangers that had worked in the, you know, Colonial Parkway investigation are now part of the investigation in 1996 i think that is just i don't know and i would love to hear the explanation and one how does somebody get questioned about a, a case and have that not put in his file and then just continue on and get another job at another national park and and that particular ranger by the way ran into substantial criticism he's since retired but um he ran into substantial criticism uh, of how he handled other cases. And uh, I, I remember talking to one of his critics who said to me, I'm not saying he's a murderer, but at minimum, I will say that he's a bad cop. And this individual, and we'll leave names out of this for the moment, told me that he regarded this National Park Service investigative ranger, now retired, as uh, similar to a, uh, a volunteer firefighter who would set fires only to rush in uh, wearing his uniform to put them out, that he you know, sought to be the hero and that he would try to amplify um, situations to make himself look suitably heroic. I'm not implying that this guy's a murderer. I don't know that. But um, I find it troubling that nobody said, you know, maybe you should sit this uh, Williams and Winans investigation out. Um, but apparently that did not happen. He was very much an active participant. And I'm still disturbed about it to this day. So real quick, Bill Thomas, you said that this individual, I know his name, I'm, I won't say it, but um, he we know he was working for the National Park Service in 1986. Do you know if he was working for them in 1988 for the third oh, case? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay. And, and I'll, I'll add a few more things. I know that multiple complaints were filed against this individual ranger for by, pull, women. by women for pulling them over along the Colonial Parkway and inappropriate contact. I know that he was charged with using National Park Service resources, and by that they mean a computer system, to look up women's contact information. Remember, this is, you know, nowhere near as high-tech an environment as we live in now. Um, and there were multiple complaints filed against him for um, what we would probably now call sexual harassment of women along the Colonial Parkway. And I know that there was at least one excessive force charge against this individual. And I know that he ran into pretty significant legal problems um, uh, out in the Grand Canyon National Park. And he was um, disciplined for botching a, a pretty high level um, investigation um, into uh, stolen rugs and other artifacts that were being sold through one of those Indian trading posts. Um, so this guy has a pretty checkered career with the National Park Service. Sadly, the National Park Service is often likened to the Catholic Church in that, uh, and I, you know, I'm a former altar boy and was raised Catholic, um, so I know of what I speak. The right. much in much in the same way, same way the national uh, the National Park Service behaves in the same way the Catholic Church does, which is they rarely fire people who've been accused of wrongdoing. They just transfer them from one national park to another. Um, there's a fascinating book, uh, The Case of the Indian Trader, which is available, which covers um, a significant amount of this sad history and actually names names, which we won't do here today, um, and criticizes this ranger and a number of others for their repeated wrongdoing. But uh, they never get fired. They just get transferred from one location to another. And you can think about that the next time you head to a national park uh, to vacation with your family. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of the Colonial Parkway Murders, Part 4. If you've not yet subscribed to Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic, please do. As a reminder, this is an independently produced podcast. If you'd like to help keep the lights on and the recorders running, you can support the show by clicking on the donate button on the right side of whokilledamymihaljevic.com or via the Venmo app with my username at BillHuffman3. Any amount is appreciated, and as I mentioned before, it does help keep the recorders running. If you want to stay up to date on the case, you can also follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And anyone with information can call the local FBI branch or email it to colonial underscore parkway underscore murders at ic.fbi.gov, and I will have that in the show notes. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It will help keep this show in the spotlight and help the cases get the coverage they deserve. Anyone with information about Holly's murder is asked to email or call the Hampton County State Police Detective Unit at 413-505-5993. I will also provide that email in the show notes. 
that's Thomas dot w dot Sullivan at massmail dot state dot ma dot us. People are also welcome to text information to two seven four six three seven with the subject line "Solve Holly Peranian." A forty thousand dollar reward is being offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the persons responsible for her case. And if you have any information regarding Molly Ann Bish, you can also contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI or the Massachusetts State Police at 1-800-808-9677. And don't forget, October 27th will mark 30 years Amy Mahalovic's case has remained unsolved. I do have some special episodes coming up in October. If you have any new information, please contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234. There is a reward of up to $25,000. So anyone with any information, please contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Stay tuned for the final episode of the Colonial Parkway Murders next week. And in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. And be safe. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 3 a.m. the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.